You turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, it's a hugely important passage in the Bible, probably familiar, uh, at least part of it, to uh, most of us. Uh, it's been called, uh, especially verses 8 through 10, been called the heart of Paul's theology. Uh, Ephesians, on the whole, is a letter about the church. That's why we're uh, looking at it, to figure out what this church is um, that God has created through the gospel and how we're supposed to uh, consider it and, and believe what God has to say about it and act out of that belief uh, in our lives together in the church. And so that's what the, the letter is about, the letter to the Ephesians, um, the, the church, a new, new, new reality create, uh, created through the gospel by God through Jesus Christ. So here in this passage, Paul, um, what he's doing is he's, turns up the contrast on this picture of our new reality, this new reality that we have in Christ through the gospel, the church, the new reality that we live in because of the gospel. Paul's turning up the contrast on it. He's using vivid language to show the stark differences between the realities of those who, on the one hand, are without Christ, uh, or the way that we used to be before we came to Christ, um, or those parts of our lives that... uh, the gospel hasn't really thoroughly renovated yet, right? Uh, that reality, the old reality, and the new reality of what it means to be with Christ, in Christ, have the gospel um, at work in our community. And so he's, he's using vivid language to show those, the distinction between those. And it's such strong language, uh, it's really not taken as friendly language, right? Uh, it's such strong language, even Christians have had a hard time believing it throughout the history of the church. There's actually a lot of um, uh, anemic spirituality in the history of the church whenever we haven't been able to bring ourselves to really believe these contrasts. What Paul is talking about here, the strong language that he uses when we don't believe that, um, it, it doesn't go very well for us in our Christian lives or in the church. We need to let it say what it says. Okay? We need to let it say what it says. We need to let um, these two realities come into full resolution. Right, and see them in high definition for what they are, uh, realities that oppose one another. And so um, by doing that, then we can grow in our appreciation for the magnitude of the gospel, the scope of the gospel. Uh, so the absolutely new reality that's created by the gospel can revolutionize our lives. So uh, we need to listen to what God has to say here, and we need to believe it. So let's pray, and um, we'll pray to that end, and then we'll read the passage. Father, there are so many ways in which we need to be turned on, uh, turned on our heads, our expectations, the way that we view the world and you and the suppositions we have about ourselves. Um, all of it needs to be overthrown, and we know that you often use strong language in our lives to do that. Uh, things that may not be at first unpleasant, uh, they may be f- at first unpleasant to us, but we know that uh, there are ultimately for our good. And so we pray that you would use your word right now to that end, that you would use your gospel, the truth of who Christ is and the new reality to be found in him to um, throw us off of the thrones of our lives so that you can take up your rightful place there and by doing so make everything new and, and good again. We pray that you would help us to believe 
where it's hard to believe that you would overcome the obstacles to our faith, um, resting in who you are and what you've done for us through the gospel. We pray that you would assure us of your love, even now as maybe we encounter some hard words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So... um, Got done a little while ago reading the Chronicles of Narnia with our kids. I know some of you have done that or are in the middle of doing that um, right now. Some of my favorite books from childhood, I remember reading them over and over again, even though uh, I wasn't a Christian when I read I, I don't know how many times I read that whole series by C.S. Lewis, which has clear um, Christian uh, messages and themes and um, situations that are taking place in that, in that uh, children's series. Um, not a Christian, but they're my favorite books, right, growing up. And um, so I wonder if there are any of you who have not read the Chronicles of Narnia, or not read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in particular, which is the first one that he wrote. Anybody who's not read those? All right. Sorry. Um, sorry, we already had our confession of sin, and I just had to drag that out. Joe's able to uh, do that pretty well, like on demand. Um, uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is a story of four children, the Pevensies, right? We've got Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, these four young children who uh, stumble upon a magical world called Narnia and, uh, and have their adventures there. Uh, generally, this, this family of children, they're good kids. I mean, they have their ups and downs, they have their moments, but they're good kids, except for Edmund, right? And Edmund... Uh, a lot of the story really revolves around Edmund and how, how kind of bad he is and the changes that come about in his life. Um, Edmund is selfish, a selfish little boy. He's following his own passions. He's looking for emancipation from his brother and sisters, right? He feels like they're kind of oppressive. They're really good kids, but he always feels oppressed by them. Uh, and he, when he goes into Narnia, he is on his own, and he meets the witch queen. I find out later in the books her name is Jadis, but she's a witch, she's a queen. I'm going to call her the witch queen. So um, she's ruling over Narnia and keeping it uh, oppressed with a perpetual winter. And he meets her, 
this bad kid, Edmund, selfish kid, meets the witch queen and he tastes the Turkish delight that she gives him, this magic food, and he's, he's hooked on it, he's addicted to it, and he is promised more, more Turkish delight to satisfy his passions, his cravings, uh, if he will serve her, right? Just do this one little thing that she wants. He, she, she just wants to meet his brother and sisters. She wants the whole family together, really for nefarious reasons, we understand, but uh, she doesn't tell him that. She, just do the simple thing. Come and introduce your family to me. And, um, and the promise isn't just for more, like, Turkish delight. It's also for power. It's for power over your brother and sisters, right? Not just freedom from them. You'll get to rule over them. That's the promise that she makes to him. And so uh, upon his service, he'll get these things, apparently. And so he, uh, he does what she wants. And he digs himself deeper and deeper into a relational hole with his brother and sisters um, where he deceives them and he has to lie to himself um, to, in order to pretend that he's still okay, that he's not actually a bad guy, that he's not out to really harm them. Um, he has to lie to himself. He won't admit that he's in serious trouble. He won't ask for help. People who obviously are, are able and willing to help him, he doesn't ask them for help. He eventually finds himself uh, in the witch queen's dungeon, captive and enslaved and cowering before her, une unable even to think about escape. He just can't even think. He's so terrified of her. She's so strong, he can't even think about escape. And it took Aslan, who everybody knows, even Joe, if he hasn't read it, he knows Aslan is this great lion, and he's the image of Jesus in, in these stories. Uh, it took Aslan's entirely gracious work on behalf of Edmund. It took his actually self-sacrificial substitutionary death in Edmund's place. Um, to free Edmund from his captivity and from his slavery, from the, the rightful claim that the witch queen had over him to free him, right? Took Aslan's self-sacrificial substitutionary death for Edmund. And when Aslan, spoiler, uh, returned from the dead after uh, having died for Edmund, he returned from the dead and he came and spoke to Edmund. And they had a conversation, they walked uh, and they, um, talked Edmund was changed from the inside out. And you see that transformation. Um, in, in some ways, it was instantaneous. And in some ways, still, he needed to be transformed. because He still has these selfish tendencies. But, but knowing that Aslan had, um, had done this, he had, he had given up his own life in order to deliver him from the witch queen and from her power and from slavery, even really to deliver Edmund from himself, because he'd gotten himself into this mess from his passions and his desires, knowing what Aslan had done, then he was reconciled with his family. Right? Then he was reconciled with his brother and with his sisters, and he even found the courage to take up arms before this witch queen who he was cowering before, couldn't even think of escape. He took up arms to fight her, and in battle he was even willing to sacrifice himself. I mean, he got mortally wounded in battle, and uh, when the war was over, and the witch queen was defeated by Aslan, he was healed. And he and his brother and his sisters were taken to Caerperavel, that glittering city on the edge of the sea, and uh, they were crowned high kings and queens 
forever. Because once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. And they got new names, and they got new titles, they got uh, authority. And um, Edmund's new name that Aslan gave him, now Edmund, this traitor, uh, Aslan named him King Edmund the Just. Of all the titles, of all the titles that could be given to him, the just. This traitor, the one who was unjust, by sheer grace he'd been made a king and called just. That was his new name. Um, It's hard to imagine a better illustration of the new reality that's created for us by the gospel Uh, by God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in our passage, and he says in a lot of places, that those who trust in Christ have been granted even more spectacular grace, have been granted even more, uh, given even more profound title. And and so we have resources for an even brighter transformation than we see in Edmund. Traitorous, selfish Edmund become King Edmund the Just. We have it better than him in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's true. Paul talks about our salvation in terms here of a life that we once lived, that apart from Christ, uh, still there's huge aspects of our life just still like this. And anybody who's outside of Christ, who's not a Christian, they're like this, right? So this is a plague that we still feel the effects of, this old life we once lived, and it, um, he's, he's talking about salvation in terms of that old life and in this new life, this new life that we've been raised to by the grace of God alone. That's the big contrast. So the heart of the contrast between the old life and the new life, the heart of it is a difference in identities. It doesn't use the word identity. The Bible doesn't have that language uh, probably wasn't really floating around in the ancient world, this, this concept of identities that we uh, talk about all the time now and spend so much money on psychiatry to uh, you know, establish ourselves in big self-help uh, sections in the library and the bookstore uh, talking about identities. But that's what this is about, right? The heart of the contrast that Paul is drawing between the old life and the new life is the, heart, the contrast between two identities, right? Uh, the old life, reality without Christ is characterized by us trying to get an identity for ourselves, us trying to create an identity for ourselves, us trying even to discover an identity for ourselves. Because humanity is created in God's image. We're created with, uh, with definition. We were created with identity. We're supposed to be in relationship with God in a certain way and with each other in a certain way, but we're not satisfied to allow God to tell us what our identity is. Humanity is not satisfied to allow God to tell us who he made us to be. We want instead to reach out and take our own reality on our own terms. We want to decide who we are, who we're going to be, what our lives mean, uh, where we go, what we do. And this is, this is very, very deeply embedded in a culture like ours where we just don't even think about the fact that we ask our kids, who do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? Right. Um, as if they're going to shape their identity by making 
choice after choice and more important choices along the way and then either discover or create who they're going to be when they grow up. Putting a a tremendous burden on ourselves and our children when we do that, but we ask and we don't even think about it. That's a normal question, right? That's what you do. Um, Engages the children's imagination, doesn't it? We want to create our own identity. This is part of who we are as sinners. We want to create our own identity that we imagine will bring us the kind of glory that we want or think we deserve. We want to create our own identity to bring us glory, the the glory that we imagine. And that's, that's been with us since the beginning, right? Since the garden. That's what Adam and Eve did. They said, we're not content with God telling us how things are and who we are and what our relationship should be like with him. We're not content with that. We're going to reach out and take it for ourselves, what we imagine to be good. We're going to, we're going to become something other than, we've been, than what we've been told we should be. Right? We're reaching out to create our own identity. And the Bible calls this a lot of things that will probably insult you. Uh, but here Paul calls it death. Death to be the kind of person who wants to create or discover your own identity. It's called death. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Nobody escapes this label. We're all dead in trespasses and sins, right? And when Paul says you were dead in your sins, he's not being hyperbolic. He's not just trying to say something for the shock value of it. He's summing up reality without Christ, Christ, apart from Christ. Reality on our own terms, the reality of those who want to create their own identity to do their own thing, that reality is what the Bible calls death. There's no life in it. In the Bible, the concept of death is more complex, more significant than simply physical inactivity, where your organs stop functioning and there's no more electrochemical activity, right? In the Bible, death is more complex than that. It's more meaningful than that. It includes things like spiritual inability. It includes things like relational estrangement, right? disunity, and enmity. For, so for Paul to say, you were dead in your sins, is more like a betrayed spouse saying with tears of anger and hurt, you're dead to me. You're dead to me because of who you are and what you've done to me. That's what it's like when Paul is saying, on God's behalf, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. You are dead to me. Right? Uh, it's a state, right? It's a relational death. It's a spiritual death, and it's also an inability. It's the absence of love. You cannot love. It's the death of the ability to love like you're supposed to love, like you were made to love, like people who are made in God's image are made to give themselves to the other, and for the sake of the other, you just can't do that anymore, right? Not really. That's, uh, that's what death is. So Paul says that this comes... Um, by following what the Bible says are basically our three greatest enemies as Christians, right? Following the course of the world, following the devil, the demon king himself, 
and following our own passions, our own desires, the desires of our bodies and our minds, self-centered desires. Ultimately, this is about pride because all of these things, they just kind of boil down to pride, right? The course of the world, the whole world promotes self-centeredness and pride. Pursuit of your own identity. Whoever you want to be, you can reach out and, and be that person, right? Um, the devil exemplifies this. This is what caused him to go astray in the first place is pride, the scripture says, over and over again, and, and sinful flesh pursues it, right? We are self-centered, we're self-absorbed, we cannot love, we're dead, we're cut off from God and from true relationship, from real love, right? We're spiritually dead. So it's a pretty bleak picture. Without Christ, trying to achieve an identity equals wholesale spiritual death. Uh, as severe as this is now, and as clear as it is here in the text, um, it is not obvious to us. Right? We are dead without knowing it. And this is why we talk about it all the time. Right? Because we're dead without knowing it. God has to tell you that this is your natural state. Right? Because otherwise you would not believe that. You'd refuse to acknowledge it. You'd refuse, refuse to look at this kind of thing in yourself and say, yeah, that, that, that's me. Right? You'd refuse to say it. You don't want to know this about yourself, that you're spiritually dead. Right? Apart from Christ, nobody wants to hear that. Our spiritual death, by definition, is the attempt to get life for ourselves. So if we're just sold on that endeavor, then acknowledging our death, that's counterproductive at best, right? It threatens my, um, the great plan for my life. In this state of spiritual death, temp attempting to get life for ourselves, we set up everything in our lives in order to avoid knowing that we're spiritually dead, in order to avoid the reality of it, right? Uh, because that would not be conducive to getting life for ourselves, reaching out and taking it. Um, we like to compare ourselves favorably to others. This is what we do. If anybody's spiritually dead, I can imagine who those people would be. People in their sins and trespasses, I can imagine that. We compare ourselves favorably to others. Or we like to do good things to convince ourselves that, you know, we're on the right track. I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting somewhere here because I'm a good person, right? I, mean, I know kind of, I'm not perfect, but compared to other people that I can think of, we push this stuff way to the back of our minds so we don't even know we're doing it. Right? We don't even know that this is how uh, we're, we're viewing the world. But God says, you need to know the reality, right? You need to be aware of who you are and what your pursuits are. He says, the reality is that apart from Christ, in and of yourself, you're no better off than the worst imaginable villain. You really aren't, right? In fact, you're no better off than the demon king himself, apart from Christ. You have the exact same problem as him. You're self-seeking, and you're proud, and it's killed you, and you're trying to achieve life for yourself apart from God, and that's where death is. It's the same problem the devil has. You're no better off than him apart from Christ. Now, it might not look the same as the devil or the worst imaginable villain, but dead is dead. There's not just varying degrees of it like they say in Princess Bride. Mostly dead, <laughs> right? Dead is dead. One person's death looks like sexual immorality. One person's death looks like idolatry. 
Another person's death looks like adultery. Another's like theft. Another's like greed. Another's like uh, being a good moral religious person thinking that'll get me somewhere that I want to be. That's all death. And in spite of all this, even though this is the kind of reality that we've chosen for ourselves, we thought this was the, the best way to go and look where it's gotten us, even though that's the truth of our reality apart from Christ, out of sheer grace, God has created and given a new reality to us. Didn't have to do it. He did it uh, at great cost to himself. It says in verses 4 through 7, but God, those are two great words right there, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this is like the gracious reality that Aslan granted to Edmund the traitor when he crowned him and called him a high king, King Edmund the Just. Did Edmund deserve any of that? No. Did he even ask for it? No. Aslan just made it happen for him. And uh, it's like that gracious reality, except the, the new reality in the church, the new reality that the gospel creates is no fiction. Right? It's not a fiction like Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. It's the new reality of the gospel. This is a new identity. It's Jesus' own identity. Really, that's the identity that we've been given. Jesus' own identity given to us in stark contrast, absolute contrast to what we deserved. Jesus' identity given to us. Jesus, the perfect son of God, the only truly just man who ever lived. He saw us in the plight of our treachery, this futile endeavor of trying to create and establish an identity for ourselves apart from God, which is death. He saw us and he had pity on us. And he knew that the only way to save us from ourselves, to rescue us from the devil's captivity, to set us apart from the world and bring us out of the world's mindset, to rescue us from our slavery to sin, from that futile endeavor of trying to make ourselves and get life apart from God, it was the only way to do this was to give us his own reality, his own identity as a free gift, and to take our identity upon himself. So he became, at the cross, Paul says that he became sin for us. He became, even though he was the true human being who received his identity from God, he let God tell him who he was, and he lived accordingly, right? He walked and, and lived out of the identity that God had given him. Even though that was true, at the cross, he became the self-made man, and he suffered the consequences of it. He became the self-made man and was unmade and was undone. And he died for us. And his life and everything that he is and everything that he has from his father, the father's love and all the father's gifts and the father's spirit, everything that he has has been granted to be ours. In his resurrection, Paul says in our passage, 
We are made alive. We're raised to new life, right? In his ascension to heaven and being seated at God's right hand, we are crowned high kings and queens. And we're given new names and new titles that we don't deserve. That's the gospel. And there's a sense in which this gospel is a proclamation. It's a declaration of a legal status. It's, it's the imputation to you of what belongs rightfully to Jesus Christ, and it's counted yours, it's reckoned yours. It's a legal kind of a status declaration in one sense. But in, a, in another sense, it's a spiritual re- relational reality. Right? This is a reality. You are no longer dead to God. Right? You are no longer dead to God. You are alive to him through your union with Christ by his Holy Spirit. God has taken you through what he has taken his son through, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, he's taken you through that, through your union with Jesus, all the way to victory and to glory and to rest. The point of all of this is, Paul says, to show what kind of God he is, that he would do this for people like us. Verse 7, that, He does this so that he might demonstrate, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So F.F. Bruce is a commentator. He says about this, that throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. To show what kind of God he is. He's created a new reality He's created the church. It's the beginning of a new creation in Christ. It's his masterpiece. And it's all past tense. He's already done it. Right? He's already done this. You already have, by grace, through faith, you already have this new identity. It's not something you could ever earn. You only accept it. You only receive it. It says, uh, verses 8 through 10, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Say that again. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is not about you establishing your identity before God. It is not of your doing. It is not of your works. That way doesn't work. That's death. It's the gift of God. It's the free gift of God by his grace through faith. That's how you have this new identity. It's given to you up front. It's not something that you achieve. It's given to you up front freely. And so Craig Barnes says that uh, life is a gift to be received with humility and gratitude not an achievement. Most of the biblical narrative for our lives can be seen as the unfolding drama of what happens when we do and do not accept our created identity as males and females made in the image of God for communion with this creator. The Bible's about this. This is the contrast at the heart of the Bible. People who do not accept the identity that is established for you freely as a gift by God, your creator and your savior people who do not welcome that and try to get their identity for themselves, and people who do just rest in it and receive it humbly and with gratitude. 
That's the two kinds of people that there are in the, in the world. And, and that's the contrast that's being drawn out so many, in so many different ways in our passage. We were dead. Now we're alive. Again, brought to new life. We were following the devil, following him as his slaves. Now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he is, where Paul's already pointed out he's far above all rule and power and authority. Right? We're not anybody's slaves anymore. Uh, we were children of wrath. Now we're recipients of mercy and grace and the richness of his kindness to us. We were boasting in being self-made, creating and discovering our own identity. That's what we were, and now we're resting in his gift. We were relationally estranged from God, and now we have this corporate salvation. Corporate salvation, it's, the language is... Uh, we are his workmanship. We, plural, are his workmanship, singular. Right? This thing that he's doing in the church in knitting us together into one body in Christ, that's a corporate thing. We no lo- we're no longer characterized by relational estrangement. We're characterized by love and community. We were walking in sin. Now we get to walk in good works. Right? Like Bono said, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Do you know that you're an ugly thing? (laughs) Apart from Christ, and that the only way to be made truly beautiful is to be found in Christ by his grace through faith? That's how God works. He makes beauty out of ugly things. And it's a decisively new reality that he's created. And And it's binary. You've only got the two choices, right? There's only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, You're either saved by grace or you're trying to make it on your own. There's no third way. There's no neutral option for us. So you need to put your faith in Christ. And if this is true for you then, this new reality, you're either in the old reality or in the new, new one. If it's true for you, this new reality, being part of the church, what God is doing by his grace, making beauty out of ugly things, then as part of the new creation, you have resources for good works. This passage says... You can actually do things that are pleasing to God now as a response to his grace, right? As a response to the new identity in Christ that you've been freely given. You really can be transformed, right? Like Edmund, who was changed, this fearful, selfish brat, basically, um, changed to be able to do glorious battle against the worst of enemies. If you're in Christ and you've received this new identity as a gift by his grace then you actually have been changed to do battle not with this witch queen, witch queen of the fiction, but with the demon king himself. That's what Paul talks about later in this very letter. You're called to do battle, and you're equipped to do battle with the worst of imaginable enemies, God's own enemy, the real enemy. Right? You're equipped for that kind of a battle. This, this new identity that you have, which is resting in the righteousness of Christ and his identity and his name for you, uh, New righteousness, the practice of righteousness, flows out of it. And so you can really move toward others. Relational estrangement and uh, um, self-seeking used to characterize you. Now, real relationship can characterize you. You can move toward others in love and kindness. You keep moving toward them even when they pull away or give you reasons to, uh, to walk away. Even when you're feeling tempted 
to cut off the relationship, you just keep moving toward people. Right? You can do that with your new identity. You can offer forgiveness because you know what kind of forgiveness has been offered to you, you know, by grace. Now you can turn around and offer forgiveness to others who don't deserve to be forgiven. That's the definition right, of forgiveness. You don't deserve my kindness. I will continue to extend my kindness to you to draw you in rather than push you away. We can imitate Christ, our Savior, in our new identity with those kinds of spiritual resources. We can be generous. Right? We can serve. We can be hospitable. We can take care of one another's children. We can treat children like real people, not just the marginalized, you know, minions that, uh, that we might prefer, but, but treat them as real people and engage with them for their good and consider how they're doing and ask how they're doing, right? You can move out even toward the, the most marginalized people in your mind. Move out to, to them with real care, real mercy, real compassion. And not just in the short term, you know, kind of a behavior change here, attitude change there, relational change here or there. The long-term trajectory of your life can be absolutely new as you bring it into alignment with your identity as a Christian, right? We're talking about your career. We're talking about the way you view your relationships in your family over decades, right? What you go to school for and what you prepare for, and, you know, these are not ways to establish a, uh, an identity of your own apart from relationship with God. These are ways for you to live out the absolutely secure identity that you've been freely given, right? With humility and with gratitude and with joy, to live out of this life in Christ in a new trajectory that, that takes up the rest of your life, right? Making all kinds of different decisions that you wouldn't have made if you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, right? You can help others to be free of their sin. Evangelism. Helping others to be free of their sin, to be free of their death, right? Um, to stop the denial about their spiritual state, and find real rest, real renewal in the gospel, in the identity that we have given to us as a gift by Christ. And you can join together as the church to give God the glory, to praise God for his workmanship. The fact that he's the one who's done this in your life, he's the one who's done this in, in this community, he and no other is responsible for making beauty out of ugly things. And so we can give him the praise and the glory that he deserves for his workmanship for the salvation, the, the new creation that we find as his people in Christ. Right. That sounds good to me. I hope it sounds good to you. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would um, never finish impressing upon us your love for us and the grace that you've freely given us, the fact that it's, a, it's an objective, historical, true reality that we've been given a new reality, a new identity in Christ. And everything that, that means for us, we want to know more and more about it. We want to know more about your love and your grace to us, your, your richness in mercy toward us, the immeasurable richness of your love, your great love with which you've loved us in Christ. We pray that you would change us by... Uh, helping us to understand how much you have loved us, and not just me as an individual, but us together, that you've loved us and you've brought us into this 
new creation, this workmanship of yours, where, um, where love is the new reality, and it truly does um, characterize us. We pray that you would help us more and more to, to live into this truth and to live out of it and um, be transformed uh, externally and visibly, and, um, and, and, but really and truly and with integrity to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ who gives us this new identity freely as a gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.